Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the April 24th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we have on two more California 45th Congressional District candidates in our coverage in the run-up to the California June 5. That's May 21 is your last opportunity to get that registration in. I believe, but we'll talk about that later. Dave Min, UCI law professor and public policy analyst Kia Hamadanchi are going to be my guests today. Another policy rich go at policies that affect most constituents. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest today is UCI law professor Dave Min, who is running as a Democrat in the California 45th Congressional District. Dave Min's expertise includes business law, credit cards, economics and law and finance, governmental regulation and policy, mortgages, real estate law, banking securities regulation. Prior to his UCI law school appointment, Dave Min was for over a decade staff attorney at the Securities and Exchange Commission in practice with the law firm Wilmer Hale and as uh, with the uh, with Senator Charles Schumer's uh, banking committee and as banking policy advisor and counsel for the Joint Committee on Congress. He recently served on the Center for American Progress, uh, overseeing the efforts of the Mortgage Financing Finance Working Group. Dave Min has appeared on many media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, Reuters, Associated Press, and Bloomberg, and is a frequent contributor to radio and television programs, including NPR's Marketplace, The Diane Rehm Show, CNBC, Fox News, and he's also already been on KUCI. Somebody scoop me. We'll leave any unfinished business from that show for later on. Ask a leader. So Dave Mintz completed his undergraduate degrees at the University of Penn's Wharton School of Business and School of the Arts and Sciences and his JD at Harvard Law <coughs> School. Raised in the Bay Area, he resides in Irvine with his wife and three children. He joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dave Min. Thanks so much for having me, Claudia. Well, first, I'm asking everybody this. Is this the first electoral office? Why are you starting your electoral career if it's your first uh, at the congressional level? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Why am I running for Congress? Uh, and I will say that um, I am actually somebody who's worked in Congress and uh, worked in Washington, D.C. for, as you mentioned, about a decade. So uh, I actually know what's involved. Uh, and I'll tell you, honestly, the last thing I wanted to do was uh, run for office, put myself out there, uh, call people for money all day, which is a big part of the job, unfortunately, until we get campaign finance reform in place. Uh, but this is an important election. Uh, it's critical, and I think, like many of your listeners, I woke up after the election uh, just feeling dismayed at our country, and I think I woke up um, after the day that Donald Trump announced his travel ban on Muslims one week into his presidency uh, with, with just a, f a feeling that I needed to do something for this country. Now, as you mentioned, I began my career at the Securities and Exchange Commission. This was after Enron WorldCom, big accounting scandals that threatened our basic economic markets, uh, I was after 9-11, and uh, for me, that began a history of public service, a career in public service, um, and I think this run for office is similarly minded. Um, this is a, a critical election. This seat is going to be critical for taking back the House. In fact, the New York Times polling expert Nate Cohn and 538's experts have all described this seat as the bellwether that will determine control of Congress. Uh, it is critical, and Hillary won here by 5.4% in 2016. Now, what motivated me to run was a very simple fact. Uh, I'm Asian. Uh, you know, Stereotypically, we're good at math, and I looked at the math of this district and said, uh, to win this district, you're going to have to win crossover voters, and those crossover voters were Asians and 35 to 50-year-olds. Uh, I believe we can get those votes. I did not see anyone stepping up that could, well, and that's why I'm running. Well, Dave, this is not going to be a horse race interview. It's all mm -hmm. policy all the time yep. here on Ask a Leader. So had you but considered any other options in running? We do have, there are concerns about the farm team for mm -hmm. the farm yep. league for all of, uh, for both parties. One yep. party's better at the building it up of recent. So, yep. but had you ever considered any other options or this, you, it was all about. I, I will tell you, the, my first instinct was to find someone else to run for 
before Congress okay. and to play a supporting role. That was your uh, option. When that person did not would accept, would turned us down, uh, that was, uh, I, I became convinced that I should step up. And again, it was a math game. It was the demographics, this district, the swing voters we need to get, and that's why I decided to run. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm not really someone who ever thought about running for any office, period, but I think that this is a seat we have to win. Well, way after the, the your time at the Muslim ban, now we've got the, the, the latest house fire, I could call it, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau created by the Dodd-Frank Act, it keeps unraveling. Mick Mulvaney is now both the Office of Management Budget leader head and he's now the head of Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And now he's sort of unraveling the agency, He's but he's got money for his staff. He's paying them top dollar in there. So what is the congressional, what would a congressional member do to remedy that unraveling of a protection that's a safety net for all of us? We're all banking. We're all loan borrowing. We're all financing something. So at the law school, so I teach at UCI, as you mentioned, I teach uh, classes on banking regulation and the financial crisis. And of course, as anyone knows who studied this even a little bit, consumer protection or the lack thereof was at the heart of the financial crisis. Uh, the CFPB was one of the huge uh, developments that Congress passed to try to prevent another future financial crisis. And unfortunately, uh, we seem to have very short-term memory because we're trying to dismantle the CFPB, as well as many of the other banking regulations that are instrumental to preventing another financial crisis. <clears throat> Mick Mulvaney, when he came in, asked for a $0 budget for the CFPB. Uh, that's outrageous. Uh, well, that's sort of, that, that yeah. is a, a, a very, uh, a, a standout kind of uh, measure that, I mean, it's unprecedented. Absolutely. And so what we need to, to do, do in Congress, and sh- uh, when I get elected, what the first thing I'll put, push to do is to haul Mick Mulvaney in for hearings. Ask him why he thinks it's appropriate to take the actions he's doing. Uh, we need to slow down his assault on the CFPB. Uh, there are ways in which Congress can exert its authority uh, and impose accountability onto uh, rogue people in the administration like Mick Mulvaney. Uh, hearings, uh, we can pass um, resolutions, even without passing legislation, there's a lot that Congress can do, uh, and and we will have to do that. Like? Uh, Having hearings. uh, There's something called the Congressional Review Act uh, that Congress has used. um, And and as far as there's something called a notice and rulemaking process, any time that the CFPB or any agency tries to engage in some kind of actions, uh, they have to first solicit public comment. Uh, They have to go through a whole process uh, about that. And so uh, to the extent that many of the things that Mick Mulvaney is trying to do are subject to those uh, administrative law procedures, Congress can play a role in slowing that down, calling him in for hearings and, and pushing for accountability. But can the minority party call that? It's all it's on the department or it's on the committee chair to do that. That's right. And, and that's got to be in power to that's, be that's, able to have those hearings. That's exactly right. And that's why we're not seeing any action right now under the Republican Congress, because unfortunately, they've decided to go along with Donald Trump's extreme agenda. And until we take back the House or the Senate or both, we're not going to see any accountability imposed. But I'll tell you what, once we do take back the House, and I believe we will this year with seats like this one flipping, uh, we can impose accountability. Well, along with that. Uh, purview that the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has are the payday loan terms, and that I don't know how many are affected in your in the 45th congressional yeah. district. But uh, what uh, what are some remedies that you have? Because it, it, that opportunity to to rein in some of those uh, liberties taken by the lenders. With we talked about that with the, one of your opponents in the primary last week. And that it's not. I, I lowballed it. I said like two hundred percent, and it was point. No, out. no, no, it's, it's like a thousand. Th- yeah, it's yeah. Like two thousand so percent. What are the remedies you have in yeah. mind to, to reverse that? Because you've got a yeah. you've got headwinds with dealing with financial institutions. Yeah. So you know about yeah. those headwinds. So most of those payday loans are being uh, done. In fact, almost all of them uh, are being done by non-bank lenders. Uh, so these are outside of what the banking committee has historically done. Uh, they, they are like little mom and pop shops, but they become uh, part of these larger Wall Street institutions. The CFPB was dis- tasked with the explicit goal uh, uh, and the authority uh, to try to stamp out abusive lending practices, including payday lending. Unfortunately, when you've got an administration that does not care about protecting the little guy, as we've seen now, uh, there's only so much you can do. Now, again, when we take back power, there's something we can do as far as uh, imposing more accountability. Uh, but we also need to push on the demand side, which is to say, 
that we can regulate payday lenders. We can try to stamp out predatory lending practices and abusive practices. Uh, but th- at the same time, what we need to do is fill that need because there are a lot of people in this country that are what we call underbanked or unbanked. And it's a chronic problem. Uh, so I'm happy to say one of my good friends, uh, a colleague, a, a fellow law school professor at the University of Georgia, uh, has proposed something that I think we ought to explore more called postal banking. Uh, the idea that we might use uh, the post offices as a means of experimenting with public banking uh, so that the little guy has a chance to store their funds somewhere without abusive fees, uh, abusive practices, and a lot of stuff uh, that we see from the bigger banks. Uh, and there's a reason why the little guy, the people with maybe just a few hundred dollars in their uh, balance, don't use big banks. Uh, probably a lot of the students listening to this right now may not use banks or may they, they may piggyback on their parents uh, for the same reasons. It, it's hard to have a bank account with, with lower balances, and you're, you're typically going to get screwed. Who's that colleague so we can always go uh, to Marissa the- Baradaran. Uh, B-A-R-A-D-A-R-A-N, and um, she is a law professor at the University of Georgia who is uh, generally um, credited with coming up with this pretty comprehensive proposal for universal banking. And, you know, this goes, uh, uh, postal banking, by the way, this problem goes back even further than that. Um, If you go back to the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you know, we often talk about the golden age of banking where we had, uh, you know, uh, low crises, a stable banking system. The one area in which it wasn't golden was serving underserved people, and particularly people of color. Uh, minorities got, you know, just ignored by the system. Uh, we passed some major congressional legislation in the 70s, 80s, and beyond to help address that problem of what we called redlining, which was just basically d- discriminating against people of color so they couldn't get access to banking. Uh, the origins of subprime lending, of predatory lending, all start uh, as a racial thing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we've not addressed that sufficiently over time. Well, actually, I'm going to take a few of those threads and pursue. It's a it's a gnawing question for me, and I didn't get it. I don't think an answer really on it uh, with the previous interview. But with the work you're doing concerning banking foreclosures, and you're talking about sort of uh, you know abusive practices on lenders, why why didn't Steve Mnuchin? Why didn't Kamala Harris, as a state attorney general, go after Steve Mnuchin's foreclosure practices? Uh, you'll have to ask uh, the attorney general. Does that surprise you? Uh, that's a state matter, honestly. And I, you know, I, I have to say that I, I um, there's a lot of reasons why a, a officer of justice may decide to not go after someone. Uh, I honestly don't know. I don't want to inquire or speculate as to attorney general Harris's or former, I guess now Senator Kamala Harris's right. motivations. Uh, I will say this. Um, the prosecution of banks was a complex matter. Uh, we had 48, 49 attorney generals, including Kamala Harris and the Department of Justice, uh, all working hand in hand to go after this. And I think not effectively enough. Uh, you know, uh, you know, we like to sort of pat ourselves on the back for all the work we did. But the fact of the matter remains, uh, we did not really do a very good job of deterring or prosecuting uh, people that went after the little guy. Uh, and, you know, we got some big headline numbers, you know, like we, you know, the Department of Justice uh, received settlements from the biggest Wall Street banks for like billions and billions of dollars. But most of those were voluntary things that the banks would have done anyways, as far as for uh, modifications of loans uh, that, that really made economic sense for them. So these numbers are really kind of exaggerated at the end of the day. And, um, you know, what the, when we're sort of left standing, the banks got away with doing a lot of stuff. Uh, they did not get much penalty, uh, and they did not get any kind of criminal prosecution. And I think that sends a real message that, uh, you know, no matter what happened, all the abusive practices we saw, all the stuff that skirted the law, uh, they kind of got away with it, and the little guy ended up holding the bill. Well, a kind of is a is a, a, a light touch modifier there. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is UCI Law School professor Dave Min, who's running as a Democrat in the California 45th Congressional District. I should add that yes. I'm the Democratic Party's endorsed candidate in the and, 45th District. Okay, you get to say that. So, um, and I gotta say that at the LA Times Book Festival last uh, Sunday, that there was a whole panel of reporters, political reporters, and they are watching Orange County's congressional races, and they're, they they actually really understand it very well, which is it's, it's a good thing when press when the media has it right. So, so the bellwethers are all over, but they're sliding scale because of some of them having incumbents and not. But I said it wasn't going to be about horse races. So let's talk uh, then about well, I want to cover a little bit of, about I'm I'm going to bring up the SEC 
sort of a, a collision of various factors. Gary Gensler is formerly with the SEC, maybe after you were there. Uh, he he joined- was with the CFTC. C- okay. Uh, which is similar to the SEC, but they regulate commodities and futures. Uh, so then he joined the MIT Virtual Currency Wizards at MIT, and he's now warning about virtual currencies. So uh, I'm not going to get into the exact uh, particular new ones after the established one. But I think we can take a few lessons from the recent high noon with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg laying bare two problems that might pertain to the what Congress has to take up next. One was the the profound utter lack of cyber literacy in Congress and the tech sector's huge blind spots on exposing the general population to ever greater vulnerabilities. What's your background got to do with legislating the necessary policies? Sure. Uh, And I think it was kind of embarrassing to watch the Senate in particular uh, try to talk to uh, and question uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, I think that exposed a lot of uh, cyber illiteracy, unfortunately. Uh, look, I, I, um, it's not really in my resume, so you didn't actually say this, but I, I started my career actually at a couple of startup uh, tech companies. Uh, I was, uh, and, and some of my best friends in life are uh, startup uh, CEOs of unicorns and things like that. Uh, and so while my particular ventures did not succeed, uh, like most actually out there, uh, you know, I, I'm at least familiar enough with, with uh, technology to be able to converse about it. But, but the point I'd make is this. Uh, there is a difference between understanding technology and understanding the policy that leads to good technology and good outcomes. Uh, to some degree, this is about our values. And it, the debates that we're seeing now are no different than the debates we saw at the beginning of the 20th century uh, when we saw the uh, combustion engine take off. Let me put it this way. You don't need to understand how a combustion engine works in, in micro detail to understand the infrastructure needs for combustion engines that led to the interstate highway system, to roads, to a lot of the innovations that we saw. Uh, it, it, being in Congress is, is not so much about understanding all the nuances of every particular issue. Uh, that would be impossible, whether we're talking economics, whether we're talking maritime, whether we're talking agriculture or uh, technology in this case. Uh, but it's about understanding enough and understanding the policy implications of those and be able to say, how do we balance this with our core American values? So in the case of cybersecurity, cyber literacy, it's about how do we promote uh, technology uh, particularly digital technology in a way that uh, prevents um, intrusions on privacy, that prevents uh, the little guy from being taken advantage of in f- as far as financial fraud. Uh, there's a lot of competing values, but in some ways uh, the debates are really the same that we've had over time. But they've been the, the intersection of the, con- the congressional qu- inquiry and the actual analysis of Mark Zuckerberg's business model. There was no intersection there. No. What's your, what would have been like your question? You're on the panel there and you wanted to yeah. push it a little bit closer to having the business model address those vulnerabilities we're all experiencing. I, I, mean, I think the big question that really le- was left unaddressed by Zuckerberg is to what degree is Facebook's whole business model about an intrusion of traditional privacy norms. Uh, because you know, to the extent that you know, we're all shocked that Cambridge Analytica was able to scrape so much of our data, uh, the fact remains that that data was available. It was preserved. And you know, by all accounts, it sounds like Facebook is selling that data to advertisers, period. And at some point, we have to ask sort of what is Facebook doing with our information? Uh, and what should Congress do about that? What should be the limits? Because clearly Facebook is not going to be self-regulating in a way that I think is that most Americans will feel comfortable with. This is a classic place where uh, some regulation is desirable. And unfortunately, by the way, I'll point out that Mimi Walters, the the Republican that currently holds this seat, has been 100 percent against traditional cyber privacy concerns. She's taken, I I believe, hundreds of thousands of dollars from the telecom industry. Over the years or over this last last cycle? cycle, Just this cycle. And she has has voted, uh, just to give you a sense, against privacy. She was one of two Californians to write a letter uh, to the FCC chair, uh, Ajit Pai, to overturn net neutrality. Uh, You name an issue, and she's been out there on the side of big telecom against the interests of, of the little guy. Now, I, we're, we're biting off big ones here. So I, I want to have you address the Tax Overhaul Act that was adopted in last December. This, there were a lot of winners and losers there. A lot of the, the 45th was affected in a big way. What's your approach to representing the 45th yeah. congressional district on this one? What can you reasonably yeah. do where yeah. we are at? So I would just correct you slightly, Claudia, by saying that the Republican tax bill, which is now law, 
did not have a lot of winners and losers. It had a few winners and a lot of losers. Uh, the few winners were people that were basically billionaires, passive investors that uh, are, are wealthy enough and lucky enough to make most of their income off of passive investment. Uh, and, and so if you work for a living, you're either getting basically nothing over the next eight years or you're getting a huge tax increase. Uh, and by the way, after nine or 10 years, when the, when the temporary parts of that tax bill expire in 2025, what we're all going to see is, is tax increases in a big way. And uh, the only people that will be left with a tax cut at that point are corporations and their investors. Uh, this is basically class warfare. It's also warfare against blue states like California, where we have um, we lose the mortgage interest deduction, we lose the state and local tax deduction. Uh, you could see the priorities of the Republican tax bill from the early drafts of it when they were trying to take away the student loan deduction and the graduate student tuition waivers. Uh, they were going to tax grad students beyond their existence. Uh, they were going to put them into starvation uh, before... Uh, enough popular outrage happened. So what I would do in Congress, and I've said this publicly, is first, uh, we can't overhaul the entire tax bill until we take back the presidency. I don't think we'll have a veto-proof majority. So what we can do and what we have to do in the near term is uh, stop the assaults on California's economy, stop the assaults on Orange County's economy. Uh, it's it's kind of unnoticed. It hasn't been in the news a lot. But those tax increases on things like our housing markets uh, on our taxes, they're going to end up hurting our economy in a pretty big way in the next couple of years unless we change course. So I think what we can do is work with some Republicans across the aisle, and I think even Trump might be open to this, to reverse those tax increases on California families and just say, look, nobody likes a tax increase. Let's get rid of the big ones on California families. Now, in 2021 and beyond, should we get a Democratic president? Then we have to reverse big portions of that tax bill because otherwise we're going to face an annual debate. And this tax bill is designed with the explicit purpose of forcing an annual debate over the following. Are we going to have another trillion dollar tax uh, d deficit this year? Or are we going to um, uh, cut Social Security, Medicare, education, environmental protection? What are we going to cut for a trillion dollars? Uh, because it creates a permanent structural trillion dollar deficit at a time when our economy is supposed to be rising. It's, it's, we're right now in a quote unquote good economy, even if a lot of Americans aren't feeling it. And yet we've got a trillion dollar uh, def annual deficit baked in because of this tax bill. So we're going to have to reverse large parts of that. What I've proposed is flip-flopping the uh, priorities of the Republican tax bill. Those uh, tax cuts uh, for working people are very, very small uh, and they expire in 2025. I would say let's make those permanent. They're a very small part of the overall cost of the tax bill. Uh, but let's reverse the uh, Republican tax cuts for businesses and investors, which are like 90 plus percent of the cost of this tax bill. If we can do that and just phase those out immediately, uh, we'll be able to get some breathing room under the budget again and be able to fund the types of investments that I've been talking about, uh, education, environmental protection, infrastructure, science. Let's grow our economy from the bottom up. We cannot do that as long as this tax bill is in place. But this tax bill, I don't hear discussion of the simple cut, the, the mechanism of cutting revenue going into the federal budget, that, that this is going to also intrude on how California balances the budget here and that there will be receipts to make up for, to shore up where those cuts are taking place in terms of the, the Affordable Care Act implementation in California. And I, that's the one I think of for, for the most part. But so that's going to be a hit on California within the first a couple of years. We don't have to wait till 2025 for a oh, reversal no. of the tax. No, we have to reverse the tax bill as soon as we take back Congress and the presidency. And we need to reverse the attacks on California immediately in 2019 should we take back the House. What Mimi Walters did in voting for that tax bill was sell out our state and sell out our county. That tax bill will raise 47% of people in this district will see an astronomical tax increase. The rest of us will see either a small tax increase or a small tax cut um, because that's how the bill is designed. The only people that benefit from this are billionaires. Uh, and by the way, it screws over our children with $2 trillion plus in, in debt. Uh, this is the worst bill you can imagine. It is the opposite of long-term thinking. Uh, it is cashing out for the GOP's wealthy donors, for Mimi Walters' wealthy donors, uh, in the interests. Uh, and, and who's paying for it? Our kids and Californians. So I'd like for you to give listeners an opportunity to get acquainted. I want them all. I'll mention that at the close of the show, but 
where can people follow up and learn more about you, including I, what we can say that there's the, the Future Chinese Leaders of America Civics Group is going to be hosting a debate that's coming up on May 5th. But are there any other events people can hear what you have got to say or follow you? Yeah, we've got an you? upcoming town hall. Um, I'm not sure the exact details yet, but it'll be on our website. So you can sign up for our mailing list. And my website is DaveMin, D-A-V-E-M-I-N dot com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, DaveMinCA as in Dave Min, California, or you can follow me on Facebook, Dave Min for Congress. I'm pretty active on both those media, uh, and uh, would love to get more followers. would love to have you following our campaign. Uh, we've got a compelling campaign down here. We are the campaign that has reached out and made it a mission to connect with local communities, to give a voice to people who've long not had a voice in this district, who've been neglected by Mimi Walters, so whether that's students, whether that is minorities, whether that's Democrats, as a matter of fact, because we've been underrepresented here. Uh, we've been getting out there, uh, and we've done now five town halls. We'll do six or seven by the time of the primary. We've been endorsed by the Democratic Party. We're the only campaign to have been endorsed by the Democratic Party. We've been endorsed by Labor. In fact, the uh, AFL-CIO brand, uh, umbrella group here in California, the California Labor Federation, has endorsed us, uh, as have many other labor groups. We're the only campaign to have been endorsed by Southern California Democratic congressional members, uh, including Lou Correa, Linda Sanchez, and Alan Lowenthal, all three Democrats uh, from Orange County. I think we're in a strong position, uh, and most importantly, we're the campaign that can beat Mimi Walters, so please check us out. I think we've got a great message. I'm running on something I call a hashtag dad agenda. Uh, let's invest in long-term priorities. Uh, when Mimi Walters went to college at UCLA back in the early 1980s, she paid $350 a semester for college at a UC. She was a poli-sci major. That's right. I interviewed her. And because of people like her, we've now seen that cost rise astronomically. Uh, And and that cost wasn't 350 because we said, hey, let's make college cheaper. It's because we thought it was a priority and we invested money in it. That's what we've got to get back to doing, investing in long-term priorities. We've got to pay it forward again and leave our children a better future than the ones we got to grow up in. Uh, As a parent, a dad of three kids, I feel like we have sold out the next generation. We need to reverse that. Well, I really appreciate a chance to have this sit down with you in the studio. Thanks for taking the time, Dave Min. Thank you so much, Claudia. I appreciate it. My Thanks guest, to your listeners. Thank you. Thank, uh, my guest was Dave Min, running as a, a Democrat in the California 45th Congressional District. We'll be right back with Kia Hamadanchi, also running as a Democrat in the 45th, after a short station break. Don't go away. That's the Canadian Brass with the Scarborough Fair. Thank you for staying with us. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My next guest is Kia Hamadanchi, public policy analyst and Democratic candidate for the 45th Congressional District here in California. Kia Hamadanchi is a product of an upbringing of Irvine, attended Northwood High School. He completed both his bachelor's and law degrees at the University of Michigan. He then went on to work at the U.S. Senate, where he was legal counsel for the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee under the leadership of Senator Tom Harkin. He then went on to work for Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, working on higher minimum wage, equal pay, and income inequality. Kiamadanchi lives with his family in Irvine and now joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kiamadanchi. Thanks for having me here. Well, first, uh, as I want to ask all candidates challenging the incumbent, is this the first electoral office you have filed in? Yes, it is. And why did you start with the congressional? Well, you know, for me, I, I never thought I was going to be running for Congress at this point in my life. But I also never thought that Donald Trump was going to get elected president of the United States. And I can remember how I felt after he got elected president. I remember feeling lost. I remember feeling not sure what to do with myself. And, you know, there was a lot of talk at that time that, you know, he's he's Trump. Maybe he won't be as bad. Maybe he won't be as bad as everyone says. He's going to be okay. And, you know, his first week out the gate, one of the first things he put out there was the travel ban where he went after a lot of immigrant communities and a policy that was built on hatred, built on ignorance. And to me, it was a demonstration of exactly what kind of president this was going to be, that he may have come after those communities, but they were they were only the first of many. And, you know, I thought the most important thing that we could do is run against a member of Congress who has basically backed him every step of the way. The fact that 
to make real change in this country. We need to take back the seat. We need to take back Congress, and we need to have a seat at the table so we can hold Donald Trump accountable. So had you considered other electoral options? Uh, not in 2018. I, you know, I, I've always, you know, had the thought that I wanted to run for office, but, you, you know, I, I was always going to be a more long-term thing. Um, I hadn't planned out, sketched out exactly what that looked like. Um, but, you know, I always thought that, you know, I'd be back here in Irvine maybe 10 years from now and we'd figure out what we, and I'd figure out kind of based on what circumstances were, where, where, where things would go. Well, I want to go to where your expertise has been developed. Uh, mm -hmm. I was talking about the Paycheck Fairness Act. Mm -hmm. It was stalled in Congress for the lack of sufficient support in the Senate since 2010. It takes up uh, discrepancies in uh, between people within the same field, within the same company, making it illegal to pay a man more than a woman and vice versa. What was your involvement in that legislative history and what, what remedies would you, as a congressperson, I guess, whether you're in the majority or the minority party, to, to deal with moving that on and adopting that? Yeah, so both senators I worked for, uh, Senator Harkin and Senator Brown, were very, very involved um, in that legislation. And, you know, it, I, I think the real key is that, you know, it's crazy that in the year 2018, a, a, a woman does not make the same amount as a man in this country. And, and it's, it's crazy that there are members of Congress who feel like we shouldn't take steps to remedy that. And, you know, unfortunately, in the, with the Senate and the filibuster, you know, you can't just pass things on a strict uh, party line majority. You need to have 60 votes. And so to, to get anything done in the Senate, it really requires rep Republican uh, cooperation. I mean, and, and vice versa. If the Republicans are in control, it requires Democratic cooperation. And, you know, I, I think one of, the, one of the most important things we can do in, in terms of the short term on something like this is just creating more transparency on pay. You know, most women who are not being paid as much as men don't actually know it. Because they don't have the transparency, how much they're getting paid for how much uh, how much uh, uh, the man doing the same job is is getting paid. They don't even know that they have a claim. They don't even know that they're being discriminated against because because of who they are. And I, th I think that's the first step. And then we need to, we need to you know build majorities in, in both the Senate and in the House um, to be able to pass this legislation. Um, you know to make sure that we, we can start to finally try, try to remedy, remedy this problem. So I'm. I'm asking this of everybody. It's uh, everybody's had a different amount of experience in this that's running in the 45th congressional district. But mm. I'm doing this in terms of how it affects uh, the listeners. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that was created by the Dodd Frank Act. It 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 it's dealing with all kinds of lending practice, all all things financial, including you know dealing with the uh, the bad neighbors, mm -hmm. uh, Wells Fargo and the other inst lending institutions that have. Uh, that where the transparency has been wanting. So what's your remedy for dealing with the fact that Mick Mulvaney is wearing this Office of Management budget hat and Office of Consumer Financial Protection unraveling? You know, and when I was in the Senate, I, I worked I worked very closely with the CFPB on a lot of things, um, especially having to do the student loans and having to do specifically with the for-profit college industry. Um, you know, we, we, we worked with, we, we talked with them a lot about, you know, some of the bad practice these, these schools were um, undertaking. And they, they actually pursued litigation um, after a school called ITT Tech, um, who's now since gone since gone bankrupt because they were they were uh, the way they operated their business was why way no no one should operate their business and they spent a lot of time ripping, ripping off both taxpayers and students, um, you know and, and 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 you know the CFPB since it's basically been instituted the Republicans have done done nothing but want to uh, get rid of it you know and 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 it's crazy that there's there's an organization whose sole purpose is to to serve consumers and make sure consumers aren't getting ripped off, and yet, 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 there's people in Washington who who want to get rid of it. And I can remember one well, you know, my, my my old boss, Jared Brown, is the ranking member on the Senate Banking Committee, and so he was he was obviously you know very involved with with all the stuff that happened with Wells Fargo. And I can remember the hearings, and I remember the Republicans pushed pushed forth the party line. Well, it's the CFPB's fault because they didn't find this quick enough. You know, they they think this organization shouldn't exist, but then once they found some wrongdoing, they basically said it's your own fault because you should have should have found it sooner. And yet, at the, at the same time, you know, there was legislation getting, you know, so one of the things that happened with Wells Fargo is they forced everyone into what's called binding arbitration, meaning that you essentially have no right to sue Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo, these people at Wells Fargo, they signed you up for accounts that you didn't even know that you were you're going for, and yet you've they've they've made you sign away your, your right to sue. And you know, one of the one of the pieces of legislation that that one a, a rule that CFPB had pulled to, uh, put out was that in financial services contracts, binding arbitration is not allowed. Um, Mick Mulvaney has since started to pull that back. Um, he started to pull back a lot of what they're doing, and unfortunately, from what I, I, I and I, I think this is still the case, since he has taken over the CFPB, there has yet to be an enforcement action from the CFPB. They've basically gone completely dark, and it's really unfortunate because they've done they've done such great great work. Um, 
And and I think that, that that's why con- where Congress comes in. Well, since you were involved with some of that legislation going in there, um, what prior to, to Mick Mulvaney's mm. leadership and all, were, were, what would you evaluate the, how well that agency was performing? Yeah, you know, I I think look, the, 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 there's there's always been a lot of fraud and and when it comes to financial services, when it comes to consumer products, you know, we, we you know one of one of the things you know we always try to do, you know, I, I did I worked on oversight and investigations in Congress, so it was with the, we were, I worked in the for profit college sector was one example, but there are areas where we know that there we know just you know as a matter of course that there there's a lot of fraud and and and, mis- and, and misleading practices going where the on. Dead bodies are buried. Exactly, and so for for one one of the things we try to do when we were in Congress is kind of like you know shine a light on these issues. Issues. And then you know a lot of times the, the, you would the, the CFPB would be kind of the law enforcement agency that goes in there and actually digs deeper. You know we 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 we, we wrote a long report on the for public college sector. It was something like a thousand pages, and it was essentially intended as a roadmap for law enforcement agencies, not just the CFPB but the SEC, uh, various state attorney generals. Um, and because because of our work, you know they went and looked at institutions like ITT, institutions like Corinthian. Um, and institutions like the Unity, which do business right here. Yeah, well, Corinthian no longer does this. I mean, they, well, I mean, yeah, we yeah. have you have constituents here that are affected by that. Exactly. You know, th- th- these these were institutions that literally ripped off students and tax and, and veterans left and right, and, and uh, in the name of a good education. But really, all they were doing is saddling people with debt. You know, for me, I, you know, I looked at the CFPB and I was like, wow, these guys are, are finally find, getting after these guys and, 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 and for some of their actions. You know, and, and there's a lot of problems in the student loan industry. There's a lot of problems with the for-profit contract industry. There's, there's, there's a lot of problems that they, they exist to address. And unfortunately, like you said, Mick Mulvaney's kind of pulled it back. And that's where Congress comes in. Because one of the things that will happen if, if we are able to take back Congress is we will get back the gavels. We will be able to hold hearings. We're going to be able to draw attention to all these problems. You know, the biggest thing, thing when I did oversight investigation was we could get a lot done without even passing any new laws just by shining a light on the problem. You know, it's the famous Lewin, Lewis Brandes line about the, the best uh, disinfectant is, yeah. is sunlight. And in a way, you can almost shame people into doing the, the right thing because even republic even these the, the worst 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 people in congress they hate bad press and you know it, it it's 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 amazing to me sometimes like this person the, the things you've changed from somebody just because they got a little bit of bad press and you know i i think one of the things we we can do in congress is draw you know really do some good oversight in terms of what where where Mick Mulvaney's falling down on the job and the, the things that he's he the basically the fact that consumers are not being taken care of you know, Donald Trump is supposed to be for the little man, but, you know, he's apparently for Wall Street big banks and, and, and whatnot. For those of you who've just tuned in, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We've got handles for every single conceivable social media platform. My guest today is Kia Hamadanchi, public policy analyst and Democratic candidate for the 45th Congressional District here in California. And we're drawing on his experience with the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in dealing with some of the consumer protection that uh, was was a bit of a safety net. So let's, um, well, I don't know. It's a little bit of a gotcha, but um, as far as um, calling out that you, your, your work's in pensions, and mm-hmm. I guess... The press is looking at Paul Ryan's pension mm-hmm. has a lot to do with his retirement date. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if there's uh, the pension is it's blowing up on a lot of budgets around on the state and local level. You are dealing with it on mm-hmm. the federal level. What what can Congress do to to keep intact those uh, to protect? pensions, but deal with the sort of the municipal and state liabilities with that. It's an expensive proposition. It, it, it is a very expensive proposition. And one of the things you've seen is with, with states and local governments, they've really fudged the numbers when it comes to pensions. You know, they've they've assumed a rate of return, which is basically is, is, is not feasible, not rational. And, you know, they're like, they're like then, they, then they invest their money in the pension based on that rate of return. And then over the long term, it leads to huge shortfalls. And, you know, that's even further exacerbated by the fact that, you know, we had the financial crisis, which saw a huge plunge in, 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 every, in, in terms of the value of a lot of these things, which they're only now just recovering from. And look, when we promise someone a pension, we, we promise, and they come to rely on that, we, we obviously can't take, take, take away from it. But we, 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 we got to make sure that uh, local governments are funding, fully funding these from the start the way they need to, not 20 years from now, they've left a big hole and the federal government has to come and kind of fill, fill, in, the, uh, fill in the gap. Um, I, I think, you know, what's what's unfortunate is there's a complete lack of retirement security in this country. You know, people don't really get a pension anymore. 
but social security it doesn't go as far as as far as it needs to you know you you and and the average retirement savings of the average american is is incredibly low almost non-existent and you know mo- most people aren't able to retire at 65 anymore and you know it's 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 a problem that we we our, our political system is fundamentally failed to 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 solve and and, and come to terms with and this is in a place like Orange County, which is rapidly aging as a population. You know, one of the things you're seeing in Orange County because of the high cost of housing, um, we are becoming older and older and older. So, you know, that lack of retirement security is going to come hit us very, very hard. You know, I just it's an anecdote, but I was struck Sunday where I was in the retail sector and at an electronic big it was a big box uh, electronic store. There was a, a gentleman that's checking receipts on our way out of the store mm. who was propped up with his walker. And I thought, here it is. This guy can't retire. He's gimped out of his mind. But that's, it's, it's really, that was so it's, it, it's vivid. A, it's to, a huge, huge problem. You know, people can't retire at 60. So, so look, Social Security doesn't go as far. You know, we, it, it's obviously great. We should, we should fully fund it, make sure we do whatever we can to protect it. But it's not going as far as it needs to. People don't have pensions, you know, and, 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 and you know, we don't offer, a lot of these companies don't offer the benefits that they used to. And, you know, people work 40 hours a week and they're just barely scraping, scraping to get by. You know, I was knocking on doors last night and we talked to a family who both who told me they, they both work, work two jobs full time and they're just barely getting by in Irvine. And, you know, that, that you, you think they're going to be able to retire anytime soon? You think they're going to be able to, they're, they're, they're going to have that ability? They're not. And it's something that we got to come to terms with as, as a society because people can't work, you know, when they get to a certain point. And they should be able to enjoy their retirement years with their kids and their grandkids and, and you know, the fruits of all that labor. That's the, it's a big bite. I don't know if there's anything more you want to say about uh, pensions and reform right now because I know that's that's like w- one of the largest parts of the portfolio that you bring. Yeah, to the race. well, you know, so 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 a lot of so when I was you know I, when I was working for Senator Brown, he was very involved with a lot of these pension uh, funds, which were completely were inadequately funded, and trying to figure out how do we how how, how what do we do about this? Because at the end of the day, you no, know, it's it's not about giving anyone a, a government bailout, but it's making sure that people who who have come to rely on these pensions and and have had this these, this promise to them is uh th- these things they, they, those promises are upheld you know and, and unfortunately you know one, one of the things we saw we, we've seen with a lot of companies you know with with, with like private equity companies or whatever and they, they come in one of the first things they do is they raid the pension fund uh and which which is itself its own problem and there there, there are all there are all kinds of reasons why, why why the pension funds have been um mismanaged you know we we we, we, we see that in uh private companies you know that a lot of those funds are underfunded as well it's not just state and local governments and partly it's because they've done a really bad job investing the money they've they've assumed unsustainable returns and these are these are all things that we need to address we, we, we need to make sure that when you're promising someone a pension you're required to actually put that money aside so that no one's going to be on the hook to bail you out later so does the consumer financial protection bureau pick up on some of that in uh, its original draft in its original construction i i do not believe so you know, I, I think the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau is, is more so like if someone is coming to offer you some some kind of pension product and it's misleading or deceptive in some way, that's kind of where they come okay, in. Okay, where it comes in. Well, the big last bite to chew on here is the Tax Overhaul Act. It had very clear winners and losers. What do you do? What's your remedy running the the representing the 45th Congressional District. Yeah, no, and the 45th uh, Congressional District in California is one of those clear, very, very clear losers that, that, that we've had. Um, you, know, one of the, you know, one of the things we, we saw is that they, they, they basically, they, their donors went to them and the Republican Party and said, if you don't pass this, we're, we're going we're gonna to abandon you as a party. This is, you pass this or we're gonna, not going to f- fund you guys anymore. So this was a complete sop to their billionaire donors. Something like 97% of the benefits have gone to the top 1%. You know, and, and, and you want to see where their priorities lie. They, they made the corporate tax cut permanent, but they've made the individual tax cuts um, so they expire. You know, and one of the things why it's so important that we take this seat, we take back Congress, is that we can have a seat at the table when it comes to governing, when it comes to passing a budget, when it comes to passing appropriations bills, when it comes to the fact that you know there are like, there are actually a lot of mistakes in this tax bill. The Republicans, the Republicans need to fix a lot of unintended consequences that they, they didn't realize because they they passed it in such a rush, they didn't actually realize that this stuff was they they, they did this wrongly, and because they kind of they cannot use the reconciliation. Uh, to, to fix it because the for procedural reasons correct the um, way it was adopted exactly uh-huh. so that they they now to fix this they now need uh, democratic votes and you know in, in, and and you know if they're going to want our votes for stuff we, you know we need we need to we need to exact a price we need to say you know 
we're going to have to exact a price on something that's going to be better for the people. So what are some of those things you're thinking about? Well, I'm I'm thinking about, you know, the salt deduction. I'm thinking of the proper... Pro- right, but you're saying things that were un, uh, not clearly understood at the at its adoption. Yeah, there's, there's, there's you know, and there's, there's a few provisions basically that, uh, you know, there are certain corporations that are not getting the, the, the tax cut the Republicans wanted them to get to because of how how poor this thing was drafted incredibly poorly. It was it was rushed out. It was it, it, it was they knew that it could not withstand the light of day the longer it was out there. So they they, they pushed it as fast and as hard as they could. And uh, as as a result, like they, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of people who who are Republican constituencies who are upset because they're actually going to see their tax increases go go up and unintentionally. But you know they they they're, they're kind of freaked. They they're, they're I think they're a little it's kind of under their radar, but they're a little worried about what to do. And that's why it's important that we have a seat at the table um, to make sure that we can fight for changes for Orange. That's going to make this better for Orange County and make this better for the people of the forty fifth district. So, what's the learning curve for you, the constituents that you've been? talk caucusing with uh, and uh, going door to door what are are people reasonably literate with what has been adopted since this uh, since 2017 I mean, people. The first, one of the number one issues people bring up with me is is, is the tax the tax issue. They bring it up. They started, or you bring it up. Well, you know, you, you know, I obviously when I, when I knock on doors, one of the first things I like to ask people, what are, what are the issues that you care about? Okay. You know, I I tell them I'm running against Mimi Walters. They get very excited, and, and they're like, absolutely, that's great. Like we need to we need to beat her. But then then I I, t- I try to talk a little deeper. What are the things you care about? And and you know, uh, taxes are a really really critical one. People 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 are really upset about the tax plan. Um, gun control is another one. I mean that's another one people have brought up with me. Put it pretty affirmatively, uh, and more recently, it's it's the homelessness issue, especially in, or when we're knocking on doors in Irvine. People, people, then one of the big things people have been asking me, what do you think? What do you think about that issue? Well, as a congressman, that I'm not sure what you can do, and particularly with the real estate market. Yeah, I mean, look, a lot of a lot of that is, is state and local issues. But at the same time, you know, one of the things we can do in Congress is incentive, you know, create incentivized policies that will help bring down the cost of housing. We can incentivize more. We can we can we can put more investment into mental health, more more index investment in helping people with addictions, more investment into job training and help helping people move kind of from that path from being homeless to actually having a job and being a contributing member of society. So I wouldn't say that, you know. We need to work in concert with local governments. We need to work in concert with the state government. But there, there is a role for you at the federal level to help some with some of these problems. So I, I guess one thing I, I found really interesting, I, I, I don't really spend a lot of time on the White House mm-hmm. website, but I, I had to check it out to see where I could find out any intersectionality with the... The, provi- the protections that had been enjoyed by the public generally and where they are now, where the enforcement and sort of, let's just say, the public policy literacy going on on the White House website. So it's sort of some of the things that you're talking about, they, they, it has a kind of a, well, I, I'll invite the, the listeners to check it out and see, sort of compare, like when I was looking at the, the uh, Paycheck Fairness Act to see what was posted in January of 2016, and it's a, there's a kind of a, a sweeping, uh, it has a more of a campaign feel jargon to the current White House website about the economy in general. We don't see um, income, well, income inequality. Um, I, that, we didn't expect to see that, but it's, it's well, you know, we the economy ex- is so generalized, and it's it's a sort of it's like going to a rally, and you're reading a kind of a cliff notes for the rally instead of breaking it down. Well, you know, we didn't see we don't see anything about income in- income inequality, but I would argue there's no more issue that more contributed to the election of Donald Trump. You know, you, you see, saw, saw a lot of people in states like Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, states that have consistently voted Democrat for the last few, few elections. And with the exception of Ohio, I think every one of them had voted election Democrat every year since 1988. And, you know, th- these are these these are these are communities that have been hurt by automation, by globalization and which, you know, they, they really see the widening gap between them and other people in this country. And, you know, here came a person who basically, prom- you know, it, there was this perception in the election that Hillary Clinton was pro-big bank and Donald Trump was not. It's the wrong perception, but people had it. And Donald Trump essentially said, you know, I'm the only person who's going to care about your communities. I'm the only person who's going to stand for your communities. You know, people in California and New York are getting richer and richer, including myself. But, you know, I'm the one who's going to who's going to fight for, for, for you, these people who, who, who are part of that widening gulf we see in this country. And, you know, that I, I think more than anything else, that's why they were willing to turn to Donald Trump, because politician after from both parties has come to, come to them and promised them 
thing after thing after thing and completely failed. And, you know, we just see this gap widening and they're like, well, well let's try this guy. It can't get any worse. So, Kihamadenchi, as we're closing here, besides, I'm going to uh, remind listeners that the future Chinese leaders of America, a civics group, is going to be hosting a debate with three Democratic candidates, including you. Uh, the others are Katie Porter and Dave Min. Uh, this is going to be at the uh, at 10 Corporate Park in Irvine on Saturday, May 5th from 4 to 6. Where are some other places, quickly, where people can follow and get more acquainted with you? Yeah, so you can, you can go to our website. K-I-A-F-O-R, orangecounty.com. That's Kia from orangecounty.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We are on uh, Twitter. You can follow us there. Um, we just had a, a town hall recently. We've had we've had a couple. Um, we're also going to, there, I think there's a three or four upcoming forums in addition to the Future Chinese Leaders of America. I believe Next Gen is having one. Uh, Demo CPAC is having one. Uh, Indivisible is, is, is having one at the end of May. Uh, and I, I think there are others. Um, we we have a couple. We 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 have different house parties and different events. You know, and and I'm out. I'm I'm as much as possible almost every night and every weekend. I'm out in the district knocking doors. Um, so hopefully I knock on 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 your door. But if I don't, we 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 are going to uh, have all kinds of events. You can you can see them on our social media. They're they're on our website. And, and you know we're we're going to try between now and June fifth. We're going to try to be in every single corner of this district. Well, that is the last I get to ask for now, and I encourage everybody to follow candidates. There is so much that is revealed on a website for a campaign. that it's, it's rife with all kinds of markers, indicators, and nuanced kinds of things. So, folks, I strongly suggest that you go there. And I want to thank you, Kia, for coming in studio with me and spending the time today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So that was Kia Hamadanchi. He is a Democratic candidate for the 45th Congressional District, and he is a public policy analyst. So that's my wrap. I've already told you about the, the civics group meeting on May 5th, 4 to 6, at the 10 Corporate Park. I'm still working on scheduling the, an interview with the incumbent Mimi, Mimi Walters and rescheduling Brian Ford. Well, that's my wrap. And next week, I'll have on Orange County Registrar Voters Neil Kelly taking this primary lap with me. We're the fifth largest county in the land, and he's good at what he does. So tomorrow, check out UCI Giving Day. KUCI is waiting with our tin cup out. Please be generous. It will lift your spirits as the famous refrain goes on Weekly Signals. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>